When we uh, started Hope Community Church in 1996, um, I had never done that before, nor had anyone who was part of our initial team. And so we spent a lot of time talking with people who had done this before or who had seen a church grow from, you know, whatever, 14, although we, it was kind of cozy at 14. We enjoyed that. It could all fit in my living room. But um, we talked to a lot of people. We read some books. I actually read a lot of books. Our team read one book by Rick Warren, and that was very, very helpful stuff. And I think there's a lot of value in all those things. Uh, there's also a danger in a lot of that stuff. A lot of, lot of people take, the, they read about these churches that go kaboom and they grow big and, and they read their stories and oftentimes these books that are written about church growth or are written about how to start a church or how to help a church grow or all those kind of things, they usually have two parts to them. The first part of the book is always it's the theory and it's what, what their heart was and it was their passion and what biblically what drove them and all the things that they did to prepare to do what they were going to do. And then the second half of the book, and it's, you can almost always see this in these books, the second half of the book is exactly what they did. You know, we sent out 10,000 mailers and we hired so-and-so for children's ministry and we did this and that and the other thing. And the danger of these books is People skim the first half, and they just copy the second half. And you can actually go and do a lot of damage to a church. And I have good friends who have done damage to churches just by taking the second half of these books and applying it to their church and saying, guess what, we're going to be like this now. We're going to play this kind of music now. We're going to change everything. Instead of taking people through the process and saying, why? What are we really doing? What's our passion? Uh, who are we as a, as a people? And a lot of those things. So I have a love-hate relationship with these books. I don't even like this second half anymore. Because they don't apply to Hope Community Church at all. Hope, you're an interesting duck. You're a, this is a weird church. There's nothing, I haven't seen anything written that's like us. Which is probably the case for every church. We don't fit into any category. And you shouldn't. And so what we did as a team is we tried to say, what do we want to be? What are some of these principles that we can apply? And then let's apply those and just punt the rest. And so we're kind of making this up as we go along, which is uh, kind of our philosophy of ministry around here. <laughs> you laugh. It's very true. Um, the thing that I've been impressed upon in our study of the book of Acts so far as we looked at this, this uh, series called The Church on Fire is that if you don't start by looking at the book of Acts and what they did, for your principles at least, you're missing the boat. You have to start there. I mean, you have to study the book of Acts and see how the church, what they did. Do you, do you, Jesus gave them a command. If you remember back in Acts chapter 1, right before he was going to ascend, he gave them a command. He says, you're going to be my witnesses, he says. You'll, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And because of that, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So far in our study of the book of Acts, we're still in Jerusalem. We're going to be there until after, uh, well, uh, to all the way through chapter 6. And I think things start to spread in chapter 8 and 9. Then it's going to start to spread. But right now we're still in Jerusalem. And there's something that happens there. You remember the, if you remember from our study, in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon this group, probably the 120 people or so that were praying together, 
And something amazing happened. It came and they, they started to speak in other languages. And it was just this amazing power was happening. And it was this amazing rush of sound. So much so that people came from all over the place to see what was happening. And as they did that, Peter took this opportunity to share with them what just happened. Not that Peter totally understood it, but he shared with them what happened. It was because of what that Jesus Christ had died for them. Many of them were people who had probably yelled, crucify him, crucify him, to the Roman leaders. And so after that first message, the first Christian message, 3,000 people respond. Acts in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, you find out that 3,000 people respond. Six verses later in chapter 2, verse 47, you find out that every day people are being added to their number. And we spent seven weeks looking at that section, Acts 2, 42 through 47, just because they started to do community together. And that was attractive to this new, this new church was attractive to people. And so they grew every day. By the time of Peter's second recorded sermon, which we saw in Acts chapter 3 when he heals that man who was crippled from birth, at the end of that, if, if you remember, we found out that there were 5,000 people now. By the time of, uh, when that's recorded and by the end of that message in Acts chapter 4, it said 5,000 men, excuse me. So it's went from 3,000 people to 5,000 men. I don't know how they easily, more easily counted men, but they did. And so I don't know how many people were all together. And then we're going to see this week in, in our passage for this week in Acts 5.14 that more and more women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Now, that's it. From, from, from the end of Acts chapter, uh, uh, from the end of Acts chapter, where was that? Uh, 5,000, and that's when he says that 5,000 men. That's the last time we're going to hear about numbers. It's just too big. They can't, they can't keep up with it anymore. And so more and more are going to continue. We're going to see that passage more and more. How did they do that? I mean, that's the pattern. If that's one of the things we want the church to do is to, to grow numerically, which is a good thing because it involves more worshipers for Jesus. Please hear that. The reason you want church growth is because you want more worshipers for Jesus. It's not so that you can say, I've got so many people going to my church. Believe me, I'm not a manager. And so the thought of more and more people is like, oh man, more fish to clean. Um, <clears throat> you know, I've shared that analogy before. And, and so it, 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 that's not it. It's more worshipers for Jesus. Why? Because he's worth it. It's like the Vikings. More fans for the Vikings because they're worth it. <laughs> Taking them away from the Packers is even better. Kingdom of darkness to kingdom of light kind of thing. <laughs> anytime there's growth, and we're going to see this throughout the book of Acts, anytime that there's growth, there's going to be opposition. You need to know something that is a spiritual truth in your own life and the life of this church and the life of any church that dares, that dares to teach the Bible. Satan hates it. Satan hates you. He hates it. And you will have opposition in your own life if you decide to say, you know what, I'm going to give up. Uh, you know what, God, I feel so convicted about uh, the, the right way that uh, I should be treating women. If you're a guy, I, I'm not going to 
let my mind go nuts. I'm not going to go into online porn. I'm just going to give that up, Lord, for you. Oh, easy, done, right? No chance. You are going to get persecuted. You're going to get opposed for that decision. Or whatever, whatever decision you make, you're, you're going to feel it. Ten times stronger than it was before. You're going to feel opposition. You're always going to feel it in that church, or in the church when it's making strength. Satan hates the church. He hates the church that, that teaches the Bible. He hates this church. He hates other churches right on this street here. One of the things that encourages me, though, is a message that my brother Hamlet preached in 1999 during a series we called The End. Because we thought and we preached and we sold books that 2000 was the end of all time. No, 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 we didn't. I'm just kidding. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> we did not. Actually, it was a total misjudgment. I really thought that 2000 would be one of those kind of times when people are thinking, end of the world, end of the world, and all they were thinking about was Y2K, Y2K. Get so sick of Y2K. Just buy a Macintosh. It won't matter. Start a new church. Church of the Macintosh, huh? <laughs> Two members, you and me, John. <laughs> but in Hamlet's message, I, I distinctly remember, um, I, think you were, I think it was from Revelation chapter 12, if I remember, and it was talking about the dragon in Revelation chapter 12, and I distinctly remember Hamlet preaching to, if you were there, and, and I was, and he preaching to us saying, listen, Satan and God are not co-equals on, you know, the good side of the tracks and the bad side of the tracks. It's bad theology. Satan and Michael are equals. Satan is a fallen angel. That puts Satan in perspective. Yes, he's bigger than you, but no, he's not God. God is God. God is God. He's got Satan on a leash. It's a long leash, but it's a leash. He's an angel. However, God for his purposes allows that leech to be really long. And there are times when you'll feel serious opposition. We've already seen it in the book of Acts. Seen it a couple times. It's like a couple years back, I was suffering for Jesus at a conference in uh, San Diego, California. <laughs> and, and when you go to the, 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 the waters in, in Southern California, and you, go, you have to go swimming and those kind of things, um, there... The, the waves come in. Actually, that's the wrong story. I was suffering for Jesus in uh, Orlando, Florida when I did this. I'm sorry. Um, we didn't swim in San Diego, did we? We swam in, uh, yeah. Um, and if you've ever been at the ocean, there's a, there's a wave that comes, and it's a big wave. Okay, and it's bigger than in Minnesota. You know, it's just, there's these waves. <laughs> State the obvious, Trike, yeah. There's these waves that hit you when you're swimming, in Minnesota, you just walk out to where you want to swim, and, and then you just go swimming. Well, in the ocean, when, you, when the wave hits you, it just takes you all the way in with all the starfish, up back towards the, the shore. You either, there's one of two ways. You can either really try to put your shoulder into it, and try, or you can just dive through it. you got to resist that wave when it comes. And I kind of got, I saw people diving through it, and it's like, well, that's easy. You don't have to do any of this resist. You just dive through the wave. How did the church dive through these waves when they came? First wave we saw, if you remember, was after Peter heals that crippled man. The religious authorities had had enough of this craziness, had had enough of, in their own temple, Peter is proclaiming about Jesus. They had enough of it. They, they seize him. They bring him before the Sanhedrin, which is 71 guys. I'm sure they're all crabby. And they're looking at Peter and John. 
And they say, what power, what authority have you done this? And Peter gives this awesome answer, which he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I mean, it's just, he's signing his death sentence. They respond amazingly, the, the Sanhedrin, because they saw his courage and saw that they were unschooled men and saw that they had been with Jesus, these two men, they let him go after they further threatened them. Don't do that anymore. Well, the first thing they do after that <clears throat> is they go pray. We saw in Acts uh, chapter 4, they go pray and their prayer is, God, send more miracles so we can do more of that stuff. Civil disobedience, right? It's okay to be civilly disobedient when it comes to obeying God. Holy Spirit, do more of that stuff. And they go out and they do more of it. That's the first wave. The second wave, I think, was probably much more frightening for the church. And we saw that last week. And that was the wave of Ananias and Sapphira. Internal church conflict. Two people who lied to the Holy Spirit. How do they brace against this wave? Well, they, they don't say, well, you know, these people are works in progress and we'll just kind of, no big deal. No, they made sin a big deal. And Ananias and Sapphira die right there. I'm not saying that's the normative every time, but the, but the church took sin very seriously. In fact, twice, and the point of that passage, twice it says it, is once after Ananias dies and once after Sapphira dies, it says, great fear seized the church. So I know last week was a heavy week, but it was kind of meant to be. If, if we didn't get a grip of, wow, sin is really a heavy deal, then you, you miss the point of that passage. How did they dive through that second wave? They dove through it by saying, God, we are going to stand, stand firm and say it is a big deal. Let's look this week at the third wave of opposition and about how that they dove through it. And, and we really want to answer the question is how in the spite of these waves... How does the church keep growing? What are they doing to allow the church to keep growing like it is? It just keeps flourishing. What do they do? So open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 5. Those of you who have been here through the, for, since the beginning of this uh, study, we're in our 21st week of this thing. You know, and it took us like few, forever to get through like, I don't know, a couple verses or something. By the end of the summer, I was laying it out. Man, we're going to be like Acts 10 or 11. It's like, woo hoo, -hoo. We're going to be smoking. Anyway. Today we're covering 30 verses. Oh boy. Hope you packed a lunch. Acts 5, verses 12 through uh, 42 is where we're going to look. We're just going to kind of look at this chunk at a time and stop and say, what did the church do to allow the church to be a church that was attractive and in, the, in spite of this wave, and this wave's going to come in the form of opposition again, we're going to see it. How did they spread the word? How did they grow the church to accomplish what Jesus wanted them to do, be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth? Okay, Acts chapter 5, starting at verse 12. It says, The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. Now this is the next verse after Ananias and Sapphira dying. So God's obviously blessing them. He's blessing this church. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. I love these next two verses. Actually, they're confusing. But after looking at them for a week, I love these next two verses. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Doesn't that not make you scratch your head? No one dared join them, even though they were highly favored. 
Nevertheless, more and more people were added to them, added to the number they believed in the Lord. It's like, uh, am I missing something here? So I thought, ah, oh, no, I'll just look at the original language. You know what it says in the original language? It says, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. That helped a lot, thanks two years of Greek. <clears throat> What's going on here? What is that talking about? And I think what it's saying is, given in context of Ananias and Sapphira, that there was a certain level of purity and holiness going on in that movement that people said there's a high cost to be there. There's a high cost to be, to be part of this movement. And so you just couldn't hang out with this movement. It was either in or out. You were going to decide, am I going to be part of this or not? People didn't come because they were afraid that in this place, these people take sin seriously, and yet, verse 14 says, that was attractive. That's interesting, huh? That is, isn't that cool? I think in our setting, we sometimes, uh, we sometimes say, you know what, don't be hard on sin in your church, nobody will come. Don't be hard on sin, nobody will come. And I, and I admit it, I'm, I'm a sinner just like everybody else in this room, and, and there's things God convicts me of every time during worship here every week. I, you know, it gets, it, gets, it gets tiring at times. You're like, oh, man. But that's a bad theology of sin. Good theology of sin says, you know what? I was designed of God to live a way that makes me full, makes me happy, and glorifies God. And if I'm not living that way, I'm getting ripped off. It's a rip-off to sin. It's stupid to sin. You think, oh, that'll be fun. Oh, boy, that'll be great. And then you do it, or you're involved in it, or you think it, or you don't do something you should do, or whatever, and then you go, nom, nom, nom. yuck, that didn't satisfy me. You're getting ripped off. Church needs to be hard on sin. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Why? Because it's stupid. I, I, I wouldn't be doing you any good if I said, you know what, just, you know, whatever feels good. Just go for it. That's stupid. It's like saying you go to a financial council and saying, you know what, I, I know we're here to talk about money management. You know, just spend your money any way you want. It'll be all right. You'll be okay. It'd be like going to Alcoholics Anonymous and for them saying, you know, gosh, we're kind of hard on alcohol use around here. You know, we really, you know, our main people come and they're, you know, that's something they struggle with. So we should probably just say, you know, it's okay. It's okay. Not a big deal. No, I, I come from a family that has alcoholics in it. It's a big deal. It messes up families. And Alcoholics Anonymous is a place where alcoholics can go and say, you know what, it's a big deal. Help me get out of it. That's what the church should be. A place saying, yeah, you know what, I'm in the thick of this thing. I struggle every day with it, but I don't want that. That's what it seems to me, the first thing that they continued to meet and they practiced personal holiness. So something about this church that was authentic. It wasn't just playing a game. These people who came together were real. There was authenticity about them. Second thing, verse 15. What did they do now to help the church grow? Second thing, verse 15. As a result, as a result of this, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least... Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. 
crowds, crowds, this is a simple fisherman. People want to shadow to land on him. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. I think the second thing that, that they did to practice, they practiced uh, how to help the church grow. This thing was, this is out of hand, okay? There's people coming from everywhere. Crowds were gathering, bringing the sick, and people tormented by evil spirits, and they were healed. I think, I think one of the second thing that they did is they allowed the church to be a place where God's power was evident. God was not just an idea. God is an idea, but he's more than that. Being a Christian is not just a state where you've got your get out of hell free card. Okay, it is that, but it's more than that. It's being in a right relationship with the almighty God of the universe who spoke a word and worlds that weren't were. Whoa, that's pretty cool. It's, it's, it's being in a relationship with the almighty God where you can pray and ask him to heal. And, and I'm not saying he always does, but he always could. Always could. Hope, I, I, I desire for hope to be a place, and we desire more and more and more that we would see the power of God in our midst. We would see the power of God. We'd see things that make us, make us stop and go, whoa, this is the power of God. This is finger of God stuff. I've had a couple phone calls like that with some miraculous healings where I've literally had to sit back down and go, whoa, that's finger of God stuff. Hope, pray for signs and wonders. Pray for miracles. Pray for people to be set free from sin that seems to grip you so hard you can't get... Hey, ask God. He can do it. They allowed the church to be a place where the power of God was evident. Third thing, starting in verse 17. The third thing is with this. They were persecuted. They were persecuted. Verse 17. Then the high priests... The high priest and all his associates who were members of the parties of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. <laughs> I love angels. I do, man. They got some of the greatest lines in all scripture. Listen to this line. He's saying, you know, I'm getting you out of jail, basically. That'd be all he'd have to say, but he doesn't. He says this. He says, go, stand in the temple courts. Go right back where you were. <laughs> and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. Isn't that great? They went and taught the full message too. Just said, you know what? Unload. These people can handle longer than a 30-minute sermon, man. Give them the full deal. <laughs> Give them the full message. Start in Genesis Take an offering somewhere in Deuteronomy. Keep going. <laughs> Keep going. Tell them the full message, and I love this phrase, of the new life. Again, it's not just a concept. It's about new life you can have in Christ. It says, tell them that. Where do they go? It's so beautiful. They go right back to the temple courts where they just were arrested. You know, if I got out of jail free, you got an angel gave me a get out of jail free card, that'd be like, oh, thank you. And then he would say, you know what? I want you to go right back where you were. My first response would be, didn't I just get arrested there? I mean, wasn't that a spot where it was kind of a little dangerous to be? No, these guys are just riding high. 
Sure, sounds great. Let's go to the temple. Second half of verse 21 says, When the high priest and the associates arrived, they're now in their court. They're going to bring these, these, uh, these uh, 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 apostles with them. Or they're going to bring them before them. They called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, all, 20, all 71 of these people, and they sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, no one, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Oh, man. Can you imagine that report? I thought we arrested you all and put you in there, and now you're right back over there doing exactly what we arrested you not to do. At that, the captain, verse 26, went with his officers and brought the apostles. So now you got all the apostles. I assume all 12 of them are standing there. They did not use force because they feared. They didn't use force. They asked them to come. They didn't say, hey, you're coming with us and, you know, put them on the back of the squad car and click there. No, no, no. They brought them peacefully because they feared that the people would stone them if they tried to do that. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. That's a great phrase. We told you, wait a minute now, wait a minute now. Don't you understand? We, we, I think, yeah, yeah, I was there. We told you last time. You can look it up. It's in Acts chapter 4. We, we, we told you not to do that. And it was just a chapter later and you're already doing it. And then we arrest you and you're doing it again. And I love this phrase. You have filled Jerusalem. <laughs> it's spread. You filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Every November, we, since our inception, we have been, uh, and I'm going to use this phrase, and, I, and, I, and some people don't like when I use it, but I'm still going to use it. Uh, you can email uh, Hamlet at hamlet at hopecc.com. <laughs> we celebrate Prayer for the Persecuted Church Sunday. And I celebrate them because they're my heroes. And about the current state of people throughout the world are going through persecution because of Christ. Seventy million people have died for the faith since Jesus gave this command. And some of them are happening. As a matter of fact, uh, there's, there's some great websites. Let me just throw them up here real quick. Uh, the first one is my favorite, but the other two are good too, persecution.org. And you can go to persecution.org, and it will give you, on, a, on, a, on there's like three columns. On this third column, for you it would be the other way, so three columns over here. Uh, in this third column, there's just constant updates. So last night I was there, and there was something that had happened that day. And that thing is already, I looked this morning, it's already six down. There's five more reports around the world of things that are happening. So you can be praying in real time what's going on. A few years back, we showed a video on Persecuted Church Sunday. We'll, we'll, we'll honor it and celebrate it again on, on this November. Um, and it was a, a tape of a, a Chinese church, underground Chinese church. And the pastor of that church said, he said, persecution, good. More persecution, more believers. Less persecution, less believers. 
Now, I don't think anybody in this church is praying for persecution. That would be something we talked a few weeks ago about dangerous prayers. That would be really a dangerous prayer. But there's something about when your life is on the line and you're being persecuted for your faith and you take a stand for it that is electric. And it's actually, people are drawn to that. It's evangelistic. It's outreach. There's something that happens there, they were persecuted. So even if you're persecuted in a small way, maybe your family thinks you're absolutely nuts. Maybe your coworkers think, oh yeah, that's right, you're one of those Jesus people. That's right. Even those stabs, and granted, you're not going to jail, you're not, you're not going to, to prison, you don't, you're not facing the lions, but there's still these jabs. Oh, more persecution. More Christians. It's a good thing. Fourth thing. Verse 29, their response. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. Stop right there. Now we know the book of Acts has 28 chapters and we know Peter's going to live, but Peter doesn't know Peter's going to live when he says this, okay? So kind of, you know, go with the story here. I know you've read, you've cheated and you've read the rest of Acts, but that, every time he's before these guys, he's got to be thinking, these are the last words I'm going to utter. We must obey God rather than men, and here he lays out the message for them. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. That's a weird phrase. Hanging him on a tree? Wasn't it a cross? Why didn't he say cross? Go to the next slide, Greg, and show why this is. In the Old Testament, there's a passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 21. It's kind of an obscure passage. It's part of the law that Moses gave, uh, Moses gave to the people. It says, if a man is guilty of a capital offense and is put to death and his body's hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because, and here it is, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land of the Lord your God in giving, is giving you as an inheritance. What a weird phrase. Anyone who's hung on a tree is under a curse? Understatement of the week. God is a genius, okay? When he put that passage in there as an obscure thing, it was the very thing that Peter, and we're going to see that you could see that in one of his letters, uh, 2 Peter, and Paul in the book of Galatians quote this passage saying, that's exactly what happened. Jesus Christ on the cross became a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's beautiful. And it's so in your face. Because Peter's saying, you know what? Just so you remember, Messiah went to the cross. He's under God's curse. Then he goes on to say, flip back one there, Greg. I don't think I put it on there twice. Um, yeah, good. Ooh, you're good. Um, verse 31. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. 71 guys, you could right here repent and receive forgiveness. And you right now, 71 guys, you guys... They're not trying to recruit to our movement, but you could get the Holy Spirit in, in, um, in your life and you could be seeing and experiencing and enjoying the very same things we're seeing and enjoying by the Holy Spirit who God gives to those who obey him. In other words, you're not obeying him, Pharisees, uh, Sanhedrin, people of this court. You're not doing it. You could. 
great opening opportunity. What's the fourth thing that they did? They were stubbornly obedient to Jesus. They said, man, we are not budging, even if it means we're stubbornly obedient to Jesus. How do these 71 guys respond? Here it is. It's moment of truth time again for them. You guys can get it. It's here. It says, for the forgiveness of sins to Israel. You guys are Jewish people. This is it. Here we go. Pack your bags. Come on to the temple courts with us. That's not what happens. Verse 33. When they, the religious rulers, the 71 people in this court, when they heard this, they were furious. The word furious there actually means cut to the quick. or It literally means cut in two. They were unglued and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose of activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God... You will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. I like Gamaliel. What a great phrase. Listen, Gamaliel's saying, there's something going on here. There's something interesting. People's shadows don't normally heal people. You know, I don't know how much of a rocket science you need to be to figure that out, but that doesn't normally happen. Where's that coming from? If this is some hyco psycho babble winko thinko thing, then it will fail. But if this thing's from the Almighty God, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. Just let them go. Verse 40, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Flogging, by the way, is, is uh, like a whipping. It's the, it's, uh, the Jews always gave 39 lashes. You could give 40, but they just gave 39 to make sure they didn't go over. You know, didn't want to do everything just right. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. You see that? They'd been counted worthy. They're worthy of being disgraced. What an oxymoron. Worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. I think that's in opposition to what they told them to do. Yeah, yeah, that was. They told them not to do that, right? Yeah. Their reaction, though, to that thing is, I think, what, what made the church grow. What's their reaction? Their reaction is to continue to be faithful to what Jesus said, but that phrase where it says, they rejoiced because they saw themselves as worthy to be disgraced for the name, 
tells me that these leaders knew that this thing was not about them. It was not about them. It was about God. They were willing to die for it. It was not about them. They knew that it was about God's glory and not about them. That is huge. If, if the church gets the mentality that, oh, come to my church because it's all about our church and it's about how big we can get it and how things are happening and, oh, boy, we've got the neatest, neatest Sunday school things. and you know, I mean, We do at Hope, Breck and, uh, Brooke. Brooke and Ben, not Breck and Bun. Um, <laughs> this is great. But when it stops being about God, it stops being about this and it starts being about how to just run a Kiwanis club. Nothing against Kiwanis Club. It's a great organization. But there's a difference. These people knew clearly that what they were doing was about God and not about them. By the way, the last verse there, verse 42, is the church on fire. Day after day, in public places and in private places, in house to house, what do they do? They never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. That was, that was the church on fire. That is the church on fire. That's what we pray through this series will happen in our city. That publicly and privately, Jesus will continue to be proclaimed. That's what we want to see. That's what the church on fire is. That's what we want to see in our midst. That's what I want to see in my midst. I want to introduce you to someone who actually is still alive. Her name is Ida Skripnikova. Ida was born in 1940 in a small town in western Siberia. Her mother and father were Christians. Her, she didn't know her father. He was arrested when she was just one year old. Her mother was a Christian. Her uncle was a pastor. Her uncle was arrested together with uh, two of her other brothers from the secret church that they were a part of. And whenever they would meet, she remembers as a very young child that they would have a guard outside in, in the area of western Siberia just in case someone would come in and warn them about any danger from the authorities. It was against the law to have organized, organized non-state uh, religion in, in Russia at this time. When she was 11 years old, Ida's mother died, and she eventually went to live with her older brother. And it wasn't until when she was 19 years old, through a series of amazing events regarding her brother, who eventually dies, that she comes to this small little church, this underground church, and puts her faith in Christ when she's 19 years old. I mean, given already all the waves that she's had to face, you think, oh, you know, she wouldn't want to be a follower of Christ. She comes to Christ when she's 19 years old, and then she gets so radical in this, she purchases some postcards, and on these postcards, she writes a poem. She writes it over and over and over on the back of this postcard, and the the poem is called Happy New Year, 1962. And it says this. Let me just read her poem to you. It says, our years fly past. I'm, I'm sure, maybe this rhymes in Russian. I don't know. But our years fly past, one after another, unnoticed. Grief and sadness disappear. They are carried away by life. This world, the earth, is so transient. Everything in it comes to an end. Life is important. Don't be happy-go-lucky. Don't be happy-go-lucky. What answer will you give your creator? What awaits you, my friend, beyond the grave? Answer this question while light remains, perhaps tomorrow, before God. You will appear to give an answer for everything. Think deeply about this, for you are not on this earth forever. Perhaps tomorrow you will break 
forever your links with this world. Seek God while he is to be found. She then took those postcards and she went to a place called the Nevsky Prospect, which is in Leningrad or now St. Petersburg. And it's the equivalent to, they say, Fifth Avenue in New York City. A very, very busy place. She standed close to a very busy intersection and she started to hand out these cards to people as they went by. She was immediately arrested, tried in a communist court in April of 1962. She's barely a year old in her faith and sent to prison and exiled from Leningrad and lost her job as a lab assistant. The motivation for what she did and she eventually then goes to prison uh, in 1965, being arrested again. She goes to a labor camp for a year. And in 1968, she was arrested and sent for three more years. And you can see the difference that the labor camp made her. That's her on the top before, and that's her on the bottom. Very, looking very much different, very much more haggard. You know what the motivation for her was? Acts chapter 5. She read Acts chapter 5. It says she was inspired by reading the fifth chapter of the book of Acts and being struck by what the angels told the apostles after he delivered them from prison. Go, stand in the temple courts and tell the people the full message of this new life. She took note of how the apostles were arrested, tried and flogged, but on their release they, weren't, they went right back to the temple courts and never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. I got a question for you. Church is made of individuals. I got a question for you as individual and as a church. Do we want to, do we desire to live out the book of Acts like that? You know, when you, when you pray the dangerous prayer of, Lord, make me, make hope a church on fire, that, that's what it looks like. Do you, are we willing to do those five things? Are we willing to, to continue to meet and to practice personal holiness? Even this morning. When we show up that Jeremiah passage, maybe there's some of you who are saying, man, I'm just, there's something holding me back. Right now, right here, you could say, Lord, by your power, I want to move out of that. Secondly, are you, are, are you allowing God to work in your life and in this church with his power? Are you saying, God, move, because you can and you desire to? Thirdly, are you willing to go through persecution, maybe looking foolish, maybe having people say things to you that are difficult to hear? Fourthly, are you stubbornly obedient to Jesus? Stubbornly. And the last thing, fifth thing is, is it about God and not about you? Is it about God and not about you? Let's pray together. God, I desire in my own life to be like Ada, uh, it frightens me to say that. That's a dangerous prayer. But she was just someone barely, she didn't have any theological training. She didn't have any understanding really of the Bible other than reading through the book of Acts. And she said, I want to be like that. And now, last account I read, she's still walking with you at 64 years old now and loving you even more, even though it's not as much persecution anymore. God, in our land, you have blessed us that we don't have to go through persecution like that to be a follower of Jesus. But God, may we not use that, that freedom as a way to be lax. Can we use that freedom, God, that would even set us more on fire? 
God, would you help us in this church to be people who take sin seriously as we looked at Ananias and Sapphira last week and this passage this week? Would you have us be people who eagerly desire to be stubbornly obedient to Jesus in all things? Would you, more than anything, God, would you make it in our church as a whole and in our lives, God, about you and not about us? Would our question not be, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Would our question be more, God, how are you going to get glorified through this? And that's what I want to live my life for. So Lord, right now and right here as we sing these songs of, of prayer and commitment to you, would you speak by your Holy Spirit to each one in this room and would you communicate to them exactly, individually, Holy Spirit, how they should respond, what they should do, how they should be, how they should act, what they should stop doing. Take out some false gods and lay them at the altar even this morning and to put you alone on the throne. Pray for that, Lord. Come and do miraculous things in our midst. Come with signs and wonders and miracles. Do things that we can't explain that just gives you glory. Pray this all in Christ's name.